Welcome to Built to Go, a van life program. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 185, and this time I'm going to tell you all the stuff I've done in my vans that was completely stupid. Or it's at least stuff I regret, and you can learn from it. <laughs> We're also going to talk about putting subfloors in your van. Should you really put wood over the metal? Does that make sense? We're going to review a projector that I picked up that actually I really like. And we're going to visit a place that very few people go to, but has an incredible history. And, uh, well... It's on my bucket list. I haven't been there yet. But anyway, welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in here. Most people, when they post videos about their vans or they post how-tos or whatever, they focus on the positive. Look at this wonderful thing I built. I mean, heck, if you look at my van tour for my NV200, it's all about the positives. It ignores all the negatives and the fact that that was the second complete build of that van. I mean, I tore it all out and rebuilt it. I had a lot of that stuff in there I actually changed later. This is the nature of van life. It's always changing. So I thought I would give you a list of 10 things that I've done in my van that I regret bad things and things that cost me money and time and frustration. And I figure if you can see these 10 things that I did, maybe you won't do them and you can just jump right into the good stuff. <laughs> so let's jump right into the bad stuff. Having said that, first thing I did first big mistake I made. I was about to go out on my first trip in Paguras, my NV200 build, and I was going from Chicago to Dallas area. Grapevine, technically, I think. And I thought, you know, I don't have a cooler. I didn't have a refrigerator in my build. I didn't have space for a cooler. So I thought, mm, maybe a little cooler would be nice. And I found this awesome little thing. It was called a Coolio. And it was about this big, you know, it held about a six pack and it fit perfectly on the shelves and it was white and it matched everything. And I thought I had found the best thing ever. It even had a secure door. Like I wasn't worried it was gonna fly open. And it was cheap. It was like 60 bucks. I thought, this is it. I don't know why everyone doesn't use these things. And then I found out why everyone doesn't use these things. Because thermoelectric coolers suck. I can't say it any other way. They're just terrible. They are inexpensive. Their components don't take up a lot of space. These are good things. But they use an incredible amount of power and there's no thermostat. They're always going. These things will suck your battery dry fast. And they don't do a great job of cooling. They can only cool under the best conditions 30 degrees below the ambient temperature. That means if it's 90 degrees in your van, and you know it can get a lot hotter than that, it's going to be 60 degrees in your fridge. And if you've got some raw chicken or something in there, mm -mm, you're just creating a bacterial farm. And you may be going to visit your porta potty sooner than you would like to. I know they're pretty. I know it looks like it's going to solve all your problems, but it's not. There is one exception. If you want to get a thermoelectric cooler to have in the front of your van to use while you're driving to keep like a couple of sodas cold, yeah, they can be okay for that. But do not use them as your primary fridge in the back of your van. You will regret it. Number two. Oh, this was such a stupid thing to do and I knew better. I used too small a gauge of wire. So when I was building out the van, I 
future-proofed a bit. I mean, I'm fairly good at that. I was like, I should run wire everywhere just in case I need it someday. That's not a bad thing to do. But I noticed the price of wire was really expensive, so I cheaped out and got a big spool of 18-gauge wire. Now, 18-gauge wire is plenty for, say, LED lights. But then I said, oh, you know, I would really like to have a 12-volt socket over here. And yeah, folks, 18-gauge wire is not enough. <laughs> Whenever you're sizing your wire, I recommend you always go a size up. Now, in the U.S., we have gauge, which is just arbitrary. 18-gauge is pretty thin. The next size up would be 16. You don't see that too often, so you'll get 14, and then 12, 10, and so on, all the way up to zero, and then you get double zero and all this. Get a size bigger wire than you think you're going to need. And there's calculators online. You can figure it all out. Spend the money because, holy cow, after you install that stuff in your van, you don't want to have to tear everything apart just to add more wires. And that's what I would have had to have done. So, yeah, that was, that was a bad thing. Don't do that. <laughs> Number three, I spent a lot of time on insulation. I spent probably two weeks insulating my NV200. I used poly iso where it would fit, and then I used rock wool where it wouldn't fit. I filled all the crossbars with spray foam. I had reflectix in some places because that's all I could do. I understand reflectix isn't actually insulation. I'm not going to get into that argument right now. I spent a lot of time on insulation. At the end of the day, I wish I didn't, because not only did I spend a lot of money and time on insulation, I ran into a problem that I think a lot of you will run into, which is that on hot summer days, an over-insulated van will hold on to that heat, and it takes a really long time for it to cool down at night. Now, it's really nice to have in the winter. I get that. But most of the camping most people do is in the summer, and the problem is that your van gets too hot, and you want to cool down at night, and insulation gets in the way of that. Because insulation does nothing other than slow down the inside of your van from becoming the same temperature as the outside of your van. And if the outside cools off quickly, your van's going to cool off slowly. And that is actually a problem. In M3, my ambulance that I'm building out, it has a very thin layer of insulation that was installed by the ambulance builder. It doesn't really do anything. And you know what? It's fine. Because I have so much heat in that thing, I've got a diesel heater and an Olympian Wave 3, that the lack of insulation in the winter isn't that big of a deal because I can overwhelm it with heat. And the truth is, I don't do that much cold weather camping. We're talking a few times a year. So don't fret about insulation. I know people go crazy. They put down the kill mat, and then they do the Havelock wool, and then they do the vapor berry and all You don't have to do all that. Unless you're building a ski rig that's going to be in the winter all the time, honestly, don't worry about it that much. You just need something to keep the condensation down. Number four, I installed a permanent cooktop in my van, and that's just a personal choice. There's an argument to be made for having one. There's an argue, argument to be made for not having one. That wasn't the mistake. The mistake was I bought a European one that's weird. I bought this one because it had a D-cell battery that would provide the spark. I really wanted one that I could just turn the knob and the spark would light it. And I didn't want one that needed to have the inverter on to do that because that's how most of them are. So I found this one that used a battery. It's great. 
And then hooking it up to my propane was a nightmare. They used totally different kinds of regulators and pipes and adapters, and it took me a full month to find the right combination of things to get it to work. And now it works, and it's fine, and all is well with the world. But you don't have to go through all that. <laughs> you know what, folks? Use a lighter to start your stove. It's not that big of a deal. It's pretty simple. It's what I do in the Tiki Bago, even though the Tiki Bago actually has a pilot light in it, and it's, <laughs> the stove is from 1973. I turned off the pilot light. I just use a match or a lighter, and it's fine. So I regret doing that. Number five. Oh, sometimes I'm so clumsy, and I'm in so much of a rush. I was screwing in, boy, what was it? I think it was a, a picture frame into the wall of my NV200. And I didn't have the right size screws, and I thought, oh, if I'm careful, it'll be all right. And I went, Zzzz! and I put the screw right through the outside of the van. The screw went through the wall and came outside the van. That was dumb. <laughs> it was dumb. There was no reason to do that. And now I've got this screw sticking out of the outside of the van. I, you know, and, and, you know, and th this was an old NV200. It was fairly beat up. It had been a maintenance van. So it wasn't the end of the world. But still, you spend all this time and money building out a van and you stick a screw through it. Just dumb. So my advice there is take your time. Think about where screws are going to go when you put them in and have a wide variety of screws available. Don't just use your bucket of screws that you've had in your garage for 20 years that someday you'll need. Go out and go ahead and buy new screws of varying lengths so that you have exactly what you need when you need it. <laughs> Number six, related to this, I often will make do with what I have, especially with wiring. I will get into a situation where I need some wire and I don't have exactly the right connectors or the right length of wire and I will just make do. Like I'll need a four foot run of wire and I don't have that, but I've got two one and a half foots and one one foot, I'll just splice them together. That equals four feet. And yeah, it works, but it's just gonna be prone to problems down the road. And you know, it, it isn't professional, I mean, not ever, I'm certainly not a professional builder. Not all of us are. You know, you want to avoid doing that as much as possible. I actually included video of something I did like this when I had to make my trailer lights work in a really short amount of time. I didn't have time to do it right. That kind of stuff adds up. And if you do it enough, you end up with a crappy build and you don't want that. So sometimes when you're building something, you're in this mode, you just want to keep going. You have to stop until you have the right stuff. And, and other times you're just gonna make it work because you have to. <laughs> Number eight, in my NV200, I put down stick on tiles. They're pretty cheap, they're like 50 cents a piece, and I was able to cut them very easily, and I put down all these tiles, and that was my floor. It was easy to sweep, fairly waterproof, I could get it messy and clean it with no problem. But stick on tiles are meant for households or homes or buildings where the temperature is going to range pretty much between 60 and 80. And in the van, it's going to get to 120, 130. And that glue melts and it will come up between the tiles and the tiles will actually move a little bit. And uh, yeah, I, I regret doing that. There were a couple times I had to replace the tiles and tearing them off and putting new ones down was terrible. Stick on tiles, not a good solution for van floors at all. I regret that. Number nine, don't buy cheap electrical components. 
And by that I mean don't buy cheap fuse holders, don't buy cheap switches to turn off your battery. I mean, light switches are not that big of a deal, but anything that's drawing significant amperage, don't buy the cheap stuff. It will come back to haunt you. So in my NV200, I installed a VSR, a voltage sensing relay. This sends power from the starter battery to the back, but not the other way. It kind of protects the starter battery. It lets you charge your battery while you're driving. And as you can imagine, that's a fairly decent amount of amperage. So I had a 40 amp fuse between the leisure battery and the VSR, and the cable was fine. I bought good cable this time. That wasn't the problem. But after about a week, I noticed there was no power. I was like, what the heck's going on? So I thought I must have blown the fuse. So I pulled the fuse out, and it was just an ATC blade fuse, you know, the normal car type of fuse. And it was fine, because the fuse wasn't the problem. It was the fuse holder. <laughs> I had bought a fairly inexpensive fuse holder. I think I got a package of eight of them on Amazon or something like that. And even though it was rated at 100 amps, it melted. The fuse holder actually melted, and it just, it was... I mean, it could have burned down my van. 40 amps is plenty to burn down a van. 10 amps is, 5 amps is probably enough. I mean, all you have to do is create some heat. Don't do that. I replaced it with a good quality fuse holder. Didn't have a problem after that. But don't skimp on the things that can burn your van down. That's probably the most important advice of this whole segment. And number 10, I'm sure you could guess this one. Yeah, don't buy a diesel sprinter ambulance. Don't do that. I mean, you can if you want. You may end up with a van you really love. I really love my van. But many aspects of it have been a nightmare, including the diesel part, the sprinter part, and the ambulance part. I, I kind of regret it, but at the same time, I love the van, so I'm okay with it. But do yourself a favor. If you haven't picked a vehicle yet, stop thinking of that beautiful end product you have in your mind and start thinking about the path to get there. Because if you can't find a shop that's going to work on your van, or diesel costs $1.50 more per gallon than gasoline, which was the case about a year ago, or it's an ambulance and the thing is built like a tank, but you want to change it, and changing a tank isn't easy, you, you may actually get to the point where you're not going to finish your build. And if you look out there, you're going to find a lot of half-finished ambulance builds because people just give up. If I had it to do over again, no, I would not have gotten a diesel sprinter ambulance. <laughs> Folks, I have to give a big shout out to Kent and Lynn and an anonymous donor who all bought me some diesel at buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. This is how I support the program. It helps me pay the bills and I really appreciate it. It also means there are no ads in the podcast version of this program. If you would like to help support us, go ahead and visit the link and I will thank you greatly. And as a special bonus, anybody who buys me a gallon of diesel will, if they wish, receive a Hook Wackabang sticker. You just have to send me your American or Canadian address and I will get one of those out to you. So thanks everyone. Let's get on with the show. Tech Talk. Subfloors. This is also a contentious topic. Um, so the floor of your van, unless you've got like a cube van or something like that, the floor of your van is metal and it's probably corrugated. Those corrugations are in there for a lot of reasons. One of them is to make it stronger for a thinner piece of metal. Another is to make it easier to slide things out. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but 
it doesn't necessarily make the floor the way you want it. I mean, who the heck wants to walk on a ridged floor? So a lot of vans come with mats. There are rugs you can buy, etc. I mean, van rugs, it's a, it's a brand. I don't mean just an actual carpet. I mean, something made for the van. But what should you do? Well, it's your build. You can do what you want. And everything you add to the floor is going to raise the height. And if you're dealing with a low top van, that can be an issue. But I do recommend you put in a subfloor and I recommend it be at least half an inch. And if you can make it out of marine ply, which is an expensive kind of plywood, but it's meant to be wet. Well, it's not meant to be wet, but it can handle being wet. And I think that's a good thing. And anything less than half an inch isn't enough. Anything less than half an inch, you can actually break in your hand. In my ambulance, I've got three quarters of an inch, which is kind of overkill. What this floor does is it gives you a base to build all your stuff because you can drill into it. You can attach things to it. In fact, that's one of the reasons to get a thicker floor is that you can put the screws in deeper. Half an inch is able to put in a little bit of screw. You are not going to rely on this to hold things in place, but it, that little bit of screw that you can have in there with half an inch is enough to keep things from sliding forwards and backwards. Also, it, it makes things level, and it provides a nice smooth surface, or relatively smooth surface, for you to put down some vinyl or whatever the heck you're going to do as your final floor. If you do have a mat that comes with your van, like a lot of them do, you can put that right on top. In fact, what's a great idea to do is to take that mat and put it on a piece of plywood and trace it out and then cut the plywood to match the mat. Then you put the plywood in and then you put the mat on that and you've got a really nice floor there. And uh, if you don't want to attach things to the mat, well, you can sell it or put it underneath or do whatever you want with it. But, but that's an option you have too. One thing to note though, just because you've cut this plywood and put it on the floor, doesn't mean it's going to stay there. If you are in an accident or you stop short or whatever, that floor can move and take all your stuff with it. And the ambulance, the way they solved this was they actually dropped the gas tank and bolted that three-quarter ply through the floor of the van in several places. It's not going anywhere. You could roll that ambulance over as many times as you want and that floor is staying put. I'm not saying you have to go that far. But you do have to consider maybe gluing it down or screwing it down in some places. You want to keep that floor from moving. As far as insulation goes, I talked about insulation earlier. The floor of your van is always going to be cold, no matter how much insulation you put in there. But having a little bit in there wouldn't hurt. So I think it's probably a good idea to put insulation in the little nooks and crannies. But don't worry about raising your floor up an inch to fill it with insulation. I mean, sure, you could put an inch of polyiso down there and then put the floor on top of that. If it's half-inch plywood, that will protect the polyiso from getting crushed. But then you're losing a good inch or inch and a half of space. And you know, for those of us who are six feet tall, there just isn't that much to work with. So you may not want to do that. Anyway, there's some thoughts on that. I do recommend subfloors, but you do have to figure out what you want before you dive in there. Product review. I bought a projector recently and it wasn't for van life. I'm probably not going to use this in my van, but I know that some of you like having projectors in your van. So I thought, well, I'll tell you about this one that I bought and heck for some of you, it might work because I'm actually pretty happy with it. This is the Mars 2 projector, Mars 2 Pro actually, and it's from Anker, A-N-K-E-R. Anker is a brand that I like. Most of the Anker stuff I get is pretty good, and this projector is no exception. 
It's about the size of four cans of beer. It's, a, it's an odd-shaped projector. It's not flat. It's tall. And it just kind of works. It has everything built into it. All the stuff that you would get on your TV that's built in, like a smart TV, it's all in there. It runs Android TV, I think, 7.1. So it's a little bit old of an OS. And it auto-focuses and auto-keystone corrects, which is a huge thing for van life folks. Basically, you take the thing, you open the lens, it turns on, figures out where it's projecting to, and then adjusts everything, and boom, you're ready to go. Now, there's a big caveat here. It does this, but it doesn't have a zoom. So you're not going to be able to make it match the size of a screen, except by moving it closer or farther away from the screen. That's one big drawback. But it makes up for that drawback in a different way. It has built-in speakers. Each are 10 watts. And for a van, that's plenty of sound. I mean, it actually has pretty good sound for this little tiny thing. Sure, you can hook it up to a Bluetooth speaker, but for my purposes, I find it's completely fine just to watch YouTube videos on it like it is. And it runs on batteries. You can easily watch a two-hour movie on this thing without having it plugged in. Now, there's a con there. It runs on 19 volts, which means you have to plug it into a regular household outlet, which means you have to use your inverter. You can't just use USB-C. I'm a little disappointed in that, but in the end, it's not that big of a deal. It does have remote control. You can do everything on the remote control. It doesn't have any voice controls. And uh, it does everything fairly bright. It has 500 ANSI lumens, which if you compare these little tiny projectors, that's pretty high. And I am able to see it in daylight on a fairly white surface. So I think that part works great. But some of you might care about this. I don't. It only does 720p, which is the very lowest resolution of HD. For me, that's fine. But if you're looking for that full UHD experience, you're not going to get it from this projector. And I don't think you're going to get it from any projector in this range. Now, the price. I think it retails for $599, and if you look on Amazon, it's about $549. But I got a reconditioned unit from Amazon for $387, a pretty big savings. And honestly, the thing is great. It had all the stuff. It just works. I haven't had any issues with it. And I think that's true for a lot of the renewed stuff is it's just somebody returned it and didn't like it or they, they wanted to watch the Super Bowl and then returned it afterwards, whatever. So is this a viable projector for van life? I think it is, yes. It has a tripod mount on the bottom. If you have a white van, you could easily just take it outside at night and project it on your van, and you could totally see it. Runs on batteries, absolutely works, dead simple. Is it the best projector for van life? Well, it's a bit big, needs 110 volts, and they do make much, much smaller ones. And when you consider that if you're watching in your van at night, you can make it as dark as you want, you don't really need all that brightness. So you might be better off with one of the little tiny Lumix ones. But that's up to you. Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes. I personally really like this thing. I'm going to use it for traveling exhibits and things like that. I'm bringing it on the cruise, the Panama Canal that I'm doing in a couple weeks. For that, it's perfect. For van life, I think it's pretty good. Link in the show notes. Tales from the road. So <laughs> my tales have gotten fairly dark of late, um, or at least maybe a little too thoughtful. 
So I've decided I'm going to tell you a nice tale, and even though it's not the right season, I don't care. (laughs) So back in the mid-80s, I went to a college called Salem College in West Virginia. And yes, that's terribly confusing, because I'm from Salem, Massachusetts, and I went to Salem State College in Salem, Massachusetts. And I also went to Salem College, and what's worse is I went to Salem College, and then Salem State College, and then back to Salem College, and yeah, no one can figure out my transcript. It's a good thing I have a degree, so I don't ever have to look at that stuff again. But at Salem College, I joined a group called the Fort New Salem Students Association. See, this school, Salem College, was a little weird. They only had unusual majors. Well, not only. I mean, they had nursing. I think they had a business program. But my girlfriend was an art therapy major, for example. Another one of my friends was an equestrian major. And me, my major, yeah, I was a Boy Scout major. No, seriously. My major was Youth Agency Administration, which was a degree that would give you a professional credential so you could work in Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, 4-H, etc. YMCA, Campfire Girls, it's a whole big long list of youth agencies. That's a whole other story. (laughs) But another major they had was Heritage Arts, and this was to basically teach you basket weaving and and blacksmithing and homesteading and a whole bunch of other skills. But I have to tell you that my girlfriend took basket weaving and it was intense. It started with an ax. (laughs) They give you an ax and they tell you what kind of tree to go cut down and you go cut that tree down. And then throughout the course of the semester, you turn that tree into a basket that's worth hundreds of dollars because you're what you're weaving is little strips of white oak it it was actually fascinating and though i didn't do it myself i got to see the process and i was like wow people make jokes about basket weaving but this is a serious skill anyway (laughs) we had a fort on campus an 18th century fort that was reconstructed of period buildings. They basically went around West Virginia and got all these log cabins from the 18th century and the 19th century and built an entire city out of them. I mean, we had a big garrison building that looked very fort-like. We had a farmhouse. We had an apothecary. We had a blacksmith shop. We had a print shop. We had a chapel. We had a tavern. All this stuff was on campus. It was actually a little bit on the outskirts of campus. And... It was wonderful. I absolutely loved every minute I spent there. There's all kinds of festivals we did, and I want to tell you specifically one story. So we did a Christmas event every year, and this one Christmas, it was Christmas of 1985, we did everything exactly the way they would have done it in the 18th century in this German-influenced community of Salem, Virginia. Now, remember, West Virginia became West Virginia during the Civil War. This area was part of Virginia before that, so we called everything Virginia. We're in this beautiful little enclave of cabins, log buildings, with a square in the middle. And in the middle of the square, there's this probably 25-foot-tall Christmas tree that we had cut from the woods. And we had mummers running about. And if you're not familiar with mummers and Der Belschnickel, we had Der Belschnickel, they were there. You have to look into German Christmas traditions. But mummers were basically these people dressed in rags who would run around and play tricks on everybody. And Der Belschnickel was this kind of Father Christmas character 
who wasn't real big on giving gifts. He was more big on hitting kids with switches with these little thin sticks. <laughs> if he was more, if you're naughty, I'm going to come after you. If you're good, you're going to get left alone. Kind of a Christmas figure. And uh, <laughs> the guy who played him, his name was George Pinkham. He was he was a Mennonite, fascinating guy. I kind of wish I'd stayed in contact with him, but he just looked mean. He had this big black beard. He's wearing this big, huge, heavy coat, and he has this big basket of switches and he'll take one out and chase the kids around it was all in good fun but it was also a little bit period authentic <laughs> now all the buildings were decorated for christmas using all natural stuff i mean we would go out in the woods and gather everything to make wreaths and there'd be berries and everything smelled wonderful there was a giant probably 30-gallon copper pot of stew cooking over an open fire in the middle. And the tavern had hot cider and things like that and a roaring fire going. Just imagine the perfect Christmas setting. We had people playing music on dulcimers and violins. It was wonderful. And the peak of this was when we decided to light the Christmas tree. Now remember, no lights back then. No electric lights back then. What we did was we had handmade candles that we had made on site, and there was one attached to every bough of this massive Christmas tree. And we spent a while, we would light each one, and we would get higher and higher, and then we brought over a handmade stepladder. I mean, this was as authentic as you can imagine. and went higher and lit more and more and more. And then it started to snow. Not that really brutal, windy kind of blizzard snow, just that light, fluffy snow that just kind of trickled down. Didn't make you cold. It was just pretty. And then the moon came out. A cloud slid across the moon, and we had this perfect snowing with a moon, which is not very common, as we're lighting this Christmas tree. And there was one candle left at the top and we couldn't reach it with our stepladder so we wired candles to a stick and we're all trying to get it up there but just as soon as we got to that top candle a breeze would come and blow it out so three or four of us climbed up that ladder and gave it a try and then finally we heard a bell dong and the event was closed and we never got that top candle lit and you know, somehow that made the event even more special because that made it real. This fantastic event that we were living that we could never reproduce, everything was perfect on this day, had this one little tiny flaw. And that flaw was better than any candle that could have been lit. It capped off everything to remind us how special it was that we were getting to experience this. I know that's not going to resonate with all of you. The Navajo famously will build a flaw into their blankets because they don't want to imitate the perfectness of the creator. My philosophy on this is related to that. But I am actually glad that we didn't get that top candle lit because otherwise the story wouldn't even be believable. Not even to me. And I lived it. A place to visit. So not every place to visit is all that exciting. 
Some of them are just incredibly historically significant, and this is one of those places. You see, in 1627, in upstate New York, some Dutch people, because that's the Europeans that were in New York at that time were the Dutch, found this very strange pond. And it wasn't huge. It was this little tiny pond. I mean, it was like maybe the size of a large wading pool. And the, what was odd about it is that it wasn't filled with water. It was filled with oil. Except they didn't really know what it was. I mean, this is 1627. Oil is something you get from seeds or from, you know, animal fat. And this was just this black, thick, oily stuff coming out of the ground. And they didn't know what to make of it. Uh, history has progressed and we now know that this was crude oil that was seeping out of the ground. It's one of the most historically significant things ever. And the first place in North America where oil was found by Europeans is Seneca Oil Spring in Cuba, New York. Cuba, just like the country. And it's still there. They didn't tap into this and suck it dry. You know, they didn't, uh, I drank your milkshake. They didn't have any of that. It's still there, and you can see it today. But what's fascinating about it is that it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's it's not part of a big, huge park. It's just this kind of oil pond sitting out in the woods near a casino. <laughs> because the Oil Spring Indian Reservation, which is where this is found, has a casino there. And they call it Oil Spring Casino. There's Oil Spring stuff everywhere. But the actual Oil Spring... It's just off the side of the road and not that big of a deal. And I have not visited this place, but I would really like to. This is the kind of place that I like to stand and just think that 400 years ago, somebody stood here not realizing how significant this was. So I will have a link in the show notes that tells you how to get there. I have not been there, but looking at Google Maps, it looks like it's fine. There was a report that the bridge, there's a footpath to get there, that the bridge was in poor repair, but looking at the Google Maps, it looks like it's okay now. You can go check it out, and if you don't like it, you can go to the casino. <laughs> or whatever. I mean, it's there's tons of stuff to do in that area. So this is in Cuba, New York. It is the Seneca Oil Spring. And it may not be the most attractive thing you ever see, but it is certainly historic. Resource recommendation. So you may have noticed that I mentioned that I bought that projector as a return. You know, it's like it was renewed or something. Uh, but it turns out that Amazon has a huge program of this and you can save a lot of money. Most of the stuff that Amazon has that is like this is electronic in nature. And I have bought several things and I've never had a problem with it. If the stuff is broken, they're not gonna sell it. This is stuff that somebody bought and it didn't work with their computer or they got two of them for Christmas or whatever and returned it. And all Amazon does is make sure it works, repackages it and sells it to you for at least 25% off. And they have a whole website just of this stuff. And it's called Amazon Renewed expertly refurbished products at great prices. I will have a link in the show notes. It's amazon.com slash amazon hyphen renewed is how you get there. And you can look through and they have power tools, cameras, game controllers, computers, all kinds of stuff like that, that tends to be fairly expensive, but you can get for at least 25% off here. And some of these things are incredibly cheap. Like here's a certified refurbished ring alarm security system that probably wouldn't work well in a van, but it's 
50% off. Kindles are 35% off. Blink security cameras are 50% off. Here's an Apple iPhone 11 for $289. That's still a completely feasible phone. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it, it'll update to iOS 17. You can get an Apple iPhone SE second generation for 148, Apple AirPods third generation 128, etc., etc., etc. So, hey, folks, if if you like Amazon and I do, and you want to save some money on some electronic stuff, check this out. It's at least worth looking at, and everything. Everything has a 90-day return policy. So if you don't like it for any reason, you don't like the color, you don't like the way it smells, you just decided that you didn't want to spend that money, whatever, you can send it back, no questions asked, and you get your money back. So I'll have a link in the show notes, but this is the Amazon Renewed Program, and boy, I think it's a pretty good deal. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 185, or maybe you watched it on YouTube. I don't know where you are, but I'm glad you're here nonetheless. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And if you would like to get a hold of me for any reason, you can find me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember the words of Robert H. Schuler, who said, Let your hopes, not your hurts, shape your future historic. I hate you, truck. <laughs>